0: Welcome to The Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. I'm Deborah Lair, Vice Chairman and Executive Director of the Paulson Institute. Today I'm speaking with Vikram Widge, Senior Advisor at the Climate Policy Initiative, who has extensive knowledge on green finance, having previously served as the Global Head of Climate Finance and Policy at the International Finance Corporation. Vikram, welcome to the Green Team Speaks to podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you on, and we appreciate that you've made time to join us today. You are a giant in the field of sustainable finance, having been part of some of the early innovative thinking and doing in the field, from financing cook stoves to developing forest bonds. I'm looking forward to our conversation today, drawing upon your deep expertise. Tell us to get started about the climate policy initiative. We're very impressed with their mission to provide finance and economic growth in a sustainable manner, which aligns very much with that of the Paulson Institute.
1: Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you for that very gracious and generous introduction. It is indeed a pleasure to be here and uh, to be speaking with you about all things of so much importance to us I um, joined uh, CPI, the Climate Policy Initiative, about 15 months ago after a stint, a long stint at IFC. And CPI is an analysis and advisory organization that has deep expertise in finance and policy. So, post IFC, it seemed like a good fit. It is nonprofit and nonpartisan. And, like you said, with CPI's mission in terms of helping governments, businesses, and financial institutions so that They can drive economic growth while addressing climate change, right? So our vision at CPI is to help build a sustainable, resilient, inclusive global economy. That dovetails well with, as you already mentioned, a lot of what the Paulson Institute is trying to do as well.
0: It does. And so earlier this year, the CPI released a report about scaling climate finance, focused particularly on China. Can you tell us about some of the key findings from the report and what you're seeing in terms of developments since it's been published?
1: Yeah, so just for some context, which obviously is familiar to you, since China first introduced the green financial reform in 2015, I guess it was, and actually some colleagues, not me directly, but other colleagues that I see were quite engaged on that, And uh, it's made a lot of progress, right? I mean, the key factors have included the fact that there's been high level political buy-in. The central bank has shown tremendous leadership. There's been huge progress in developing green taxonomies, the focus in pilot zones, as well as a lot of incentives that have been provided to different segments of the economy, all of which have contributed to the success. And in our sort of evaluation and the collation of data, uh, in just a few years, the green finance in China has sort of crossed the 300 billion US dollar mark, which makes China one of the largest contributors of green finance globally in terms of the whole landscape of climate finance that CPI also does. But what we found was that the next decade in climate-related investment is going to need to increase by four times. Uh, I think the Paulson Institute's uh, own estimate so sort of says a trillion dollars a year. And uh, even the sh- Singwa uh, university study said over 20 trillion, I think 21 trillion needed uh, mm-hmm. in the next 30 years. So this is ambitious, but uh, the CPI report concluded that this is achievable. It, there is a potential for significant positive returns on other fronts, also including trade competitiveness, job growth, mm-hmm. supply chain resilience, which, thanks to COVID, we all come to—we uh, all have to come to grips with—and realize how um, sensitive that is. But also, of course, overall economic uh, stability. So, you know, China does have a huge potential to expand uh, climate finance because the current penetration, quote-unquote, green penetration, in China's financial system is only about four percent. So there is ample room for growth. There has been increasing financial support for SMEs. There are new sources of concessional capital being made available, and there is growing interest in how to explore, expand, and implement new innovative structures. There are growing opportunities for foreign private capital to collaborate with domestic actors. Through funds, JVs, as well as of course greening the investment opportunities in the Belt and Road countries. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the conclusion really was that to take advantage of these opportunities, China is going to have to address some key barriers. While the top-down approach to implementing green finance has led to, you know, mobilisation large pools of capital, it's still concentrated amongst government and state-owned actors. So is there, you know, some diversification of capital to more commercial players, the private sector, clearer policy signals and incentives, participation and, um, I already said, financing, broader base, and then of course, a robust framework for accountability. So I think uh, that is what I would say is where the report came out. As far as developments since the report was published that you asked about, The 14th five-year plan was not as ambitious as many had hoped for, at least. So we think, right, there are no absolute targets for energy use and carbon emissions, and the target for non-fossil fuel power generation also remains modest. But more importantly, I think more ambitious or even more important than the net zero target for 2060, shorter term targets for 2025 and 2030 are probably you know, I think we are collectively all saying everybody should be doing it. So China is no exception. It's not just the goal; it's how you get to the goal, the pathway, right? But you know, in spite of that, it is our understanding that many local governments have got the message on what will inevitably be a pathway to achieving these goals, and are all trying to figure out how to become carbon neutral.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've covered a lot, both in the report and the developments. And certainly, as they always say, where there's a problem, there's an opportunity. And with the news that China's carbon emissions are larger than the rest of the world combined, you're giving us some hope that there are solutions. And it's encouraging that it can be done through the markets as well. Certainly, we've seen a more concerted push for action in China following the commitment by President Xi to reach carbon neutrality in 2060. And one of the main mechanisms that China is looking to reach that goal is through creating what we hope will be an effective and efficient national carbon market. There's lots of big ideas in climate, but often not ones that come to fruition. Hopefully the launch of this carbon exchange, which is supposed to be effective next month in June, will be one of these big ideas because just starting with one industry, with the power industry, it will automatically be the largest carbon exchange in the world. But I think more important, it will bring 14% of global emissions under trading by the fact that China's power industry is so large. What are your expectations for the national carbon market and what do you see as the challenges that China's facing in making this an efficient market?
1: Let me start by saying that the power sector is certainly the right sector to start with. You've already mentioned the magnitude of both its size and its impact on global emissions. And hopefully the market and the exchange will in fact launch uh, next month, as you say. And it's, from what I understand, it's over 2000 firms that are gonna be covered. So it's pretty impressive in its own right. But the history is such that I think our sense is that people on the ground seem to have mixed feelings about, will it really launch, and it's a month away, so we'll find out soon enough, soon enough. and how effective will it be really, right? It hasn't been an important driver of change yet. Some of the engagement, uh, especially through the work jointly we were doing with the World Bank, goes back several years. You know, you're well familiar, everybody's familiar with the provincial pilots, progress kept getting stalled, prices were too low mm-hmm. to make any meaningful impact. And I think that is where some of the challenges may be, or some of the opportunities may be, right? I mean, for if we can overcome the challenges in politics that ultimately seem to have been overcome, because China is about to launch a national scheme, it will come down to what is likely to be the price of the traded emissions or emission reductions or whatever the currency is going to be ultimately called. And um, what impact it actually is going to happen in terms of transitioning away from fossil fuels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're all familiar with the fact that um, what the call is for 40 to $80 per tonne in terms of carbon pricing for the near term in this decade in order for it to be truly effective. And that is challenging. There's nobody, I think, even the most recent uh, World Bank report, they, I think, published their state and trends of carbon pricing, I think it's called now, and no longer carbon markets. And uh, nobody is anywhere close to that. So can China ultimately manage to make this efficient and effective? I really hope so. Beyond that, I think given where the IEA is, given where the most recent report on fossil fuels or the elimination of that and how that will ultimately get affected, if you will, through this mechanism. So
0: I have hopes
1: for it, but a lot is going to ultimately, I think, depend on how the cap and trade part of the system really works to drive prices and create the incentives for that transition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You head upon some of the key points, and these are concerns that we share as well. I mean, I think it's important to all of us that China get it right. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to emphasize that not only is it important because it covers about 45% of China's own emissions, but the fact that it brings 14% of global emissions Mm -hmm. means that all the world should be supportive of China getting it right.
1: And that's going to be critical, right? Not only just as an example, but in a near future world where all of these hopefully find a way of linking to each other, it's all going to become a critical driver for a lot of uh, other parts of the world economy as well. So much like you said already.
0: Yes, exactly. And and at times when many of these governments themselves are struggling with Coming out of the post COVID recession, looking at can they use sort of sustainable finance as a means, as as you pointed out, of generating economic growth and jobs, but also recognizing that with many of the ambitious goals that they have for green finance, public funds are not going to cover them. In most cases, even in a case. With China, where they do have significant government funds, it's only going to provide maybe up to 10 to 15% of the financing, and the rest has to come from the private sector. So these mm-hmm. kinds of mechanisms, I think, that you have been working on and tested out in the International Finance Corporation context and World Bank context become increasingly important in creating right the structure to attract public financing. What do you see as some of the key issues for attracting this private sector money and what should the role of these multinational institutions be in helping with that process?
1: right so you know much like we were talking about in terms of pricing carbon, I think the public sector, both the regulatory and the government aspect of it and the public finance aspect it are critical ultimately to both mobilize and of course the MDBs play a role and we'll talk about that in a minute. But just in terms of the public context, I wanted to just underscore the fact that, you know, pricing carbon, fossil fuel subsidy reform, as well as, of course, green budgeting are all important elements of any sort of government sort of policy duplicate, to say the least, right? The hope is that the mass amounts of post-COVID recovery stimulus is actually going to be used. It's a perfect opportunity to put some of these policies in place. Uh, public finance is gonna remain essential, but as you said, it's got it's limited. And so maybe we need to reserve its use for more catalytic impact, right? Uh, we did a, a CPI did a sort of separate uh, study in the Asian context and found that the majority of actually COVID stimulus packages are providing tax cuts and bailouts to polluting industries. Of coal mining, coal-based electricity. So hopefully the next push is going to address that and the green bits are going to be a, the majority of how it is going to be deployed because otherwise, not only do you have these public investments at the risk of being stranded, you know, you, the appetite for foreign investment diminishes, there are longer-term negative impacts, as we know, fossil fuel use, such as dangerous local air pollution, right? I mean, countries like China, countries like India are already suffering from those impacts. So there are a lot of sort of co benefits, of course, of being able to do that. So Mm -hmm. as long as sort of consistent and clear policy raises the ambition, creates more incentives so that there is support to experiment with the innovative financing structures that I was talking about earlier, and then helping sort of build and increase the visibility of the pipeline of green projects that private actors can be part of or run with on their own. And I think since we're talking about China, it's worth uh, highlighting some of the kind of matchmaking platforms like uh, I think the Bank of Huizhou, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but they are green. They have a green credit management platform. The municipal government there has a green finance sort of one-stop service window. And so all of these can, if you can expand on these and replicate them, they can reduce the search costs for the investors, right? And they can increase mm-hmm. the efficiency by matchmaking. In fact, uh, CPI is considering launching a broader sort of Asia-Pacific uh, adjunct to its own uh, reasonably successful global innovation lab for climate finance that will help hopefully surface some of these new innovative business models and as well as replicate those that have already been incubated by the lab. And hopefully these are both attractive to Chinese investors inside and outside China. But then of course, the private actors themselves need to get into the act, right? I mean, yes, all this is good, but we can't just keep waiting for public policy to get into place, and our hope is that the private actors will start to sort of coalesce around this whole thing the, the post-pandemic recovery provides an opportunity to actually do a step shift in what this whole pathway to net zero is going to look like. Again, not to sort of, it just happens to be a lot of relevant work recently but in collaboration with Oxford University and the European Climate Foundation, CPI recently produced, and it was uh, the framework for sustainable finance integrity, right? And it's asking for different private sector actors in the financial community, whether you're a bank or an insurance company or an asset owner or manager, that you set these clear targets and objectives, right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. uh, commit to align yourself with the Paris Agreement, you mainstream sustainability into operations, and you establish and report on metrics. The interesting thing about all this, of course, is that uh, having done sort of the first uh, TCFD disclosure for NDB while in sort of my last year or two at IFC, this actually surfaces not only the gaps and the actions you need, but also the opportunities where you actually should be focused on for investing into the future. And I think that's uh, critical for private uh, capital to sort of be looking at as well. I've gone on long enough, but if you want, we can talk a little bit about MDBs as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's helpful to-, to understand what the roles are of MDBs in green finance.
1: Great. Right. So I think as with the other actors, NDBs also need to set a sort of net zero and sustainability target for themselves, right? Mainstream these into their own operations and start the reporting, much consistent with the framework I just talked about, right? But beyond this, I think uh, they can lead by example, set ambitious sort of sustainable climate finance commitments, uh, as well as fairly ambitious private capital mobilization targets. Uh, how else are we gonna to get to trillions of dollars because the MDBs themselves don't have that kind of money and this sort of links back to, of course, their public masters and their own sort of investors, core investment that comes from governments. But uh, in, the, in terms of how that can do, at the end of the day, they will have to also look at doing certain basic things do they have near-term fossil fuel finance phase-out plans right um, mm-hmm. leading example is the eib the european investment bank that has already totally announced that it will align with the paris agreement it already probably has because i think their date was 2020 the world bank group has announced that it will be aligned sometime between 2025 and 2030 um, in terms of that so these are important announcements, the commitments that will follow, the plans that will actually see this implemented are, of course, going to be key. Um, and I think some of the MDBs could think more originally and creatively in terms of how to unlock the much sought after institutional investors who sort of were the pool of global savings that they control. We all talk about there being enough money, but not enough projects, but honestly, a lot of this money remains locked because it tends to be sort of risk averse, scale averse. By that, I mean sort of, it it needs to be large uh, investments. It needs to be sufficiently risk adjusted in a way that is comfortable and it needs to not be super complicated. Mm -hmm. And in that context, unless we can figure out how to service that set of requirements, I think it's gonna be extremely challenging to unlock this global pool that uh, everybody says is available and we should be, especially if we're gonna deploy it in emerging markets. It's not Mm -hmm. going to be that straightforward, and I think the MDBs have a critical role in getting creative and trying to help unlock some of that by addressing some of these concerns by aggregating, perhaps by de-risking, and then Mm -hmm. creating products around that.
0: And they do play a really important role. And we see growing political will when it comes to green finance. You know, one of the positive signs that we've seen recently is the reestablishment of the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group. And the fact that the United States and China are now the co-chairs and that this is back high on the agenda for the G20 is very encouraging And we see that climate finance is also high on the agenda at the G7 of the COP26. And so what are your expectations as you talk about targets for the multinationals? But I think it's important that the leaders come out with very strong statements on green finance to send signals to the financial markets and to the other quasi-government institutions that this is important, an important part of recovery. Do you have a sense of what some of those outcomes might be or what you would like to see coming out of these bodies?
1: Right. Um, look, the momentum after all these years of gnashing our teeth is uh, very welcome. Um, I, hopefully, will make up for at least what I think are where we should have been about at least 10 years ago, if not 20 years ago. But it's still very hard to predict outcomes because so much is already is starting to happen across the whole ecosystem, right? I mean, the governments in the private sector, publics, uh, the broader public realm as well. So, from where I hope we will actually end up focusing on, or at least the discussion in these forums will focus on, is one on targets. I think hopefully there'll be debate and there'll be a refinement of these targets. Everybody is getting increasingly comfortable with announcing a net zero by twenty fifty type sort of headline. Um, twenty sixteen, China's case, but as I mentioned earlier, I mean these are susceptible to at least accusations of greenwashing ultimately, and this is true for private, the corporate, and the financials uh, sector as well. But acknowledging that we've come a long way in a very short period of time, um, we need to make sure that these are credible, right? I mean. It's not only the target, but it's also the pathway to mm-hmm. those targets. And I think that is critical for green finance because once those pathways, sort of interim targets, if you will, get established, then there will be a bigger push for sort of the transition commitments made by all actors and the debate on sort of portfolio alignment. While we'll continue, we'll hopefully become more operational, but uh, we'll sort of have more operational issues than you know, the discussion on how, where, when. So, that will, I hope, create the specificity that we actually need for the next 30 odd years in terms of trying to do that. Carbon pricing and carbon markets, we already talked about, that I think remains critical in terms of trying to figure out. Hopefully, the overdue discussion on establishing the so called Article 6 rulebook for compliance markets will happen, at least by or at COP26. And of course, the voluntary carbon market, right? I mean, which is now a topic of discussion and much progress, thanks to Mark Carney's task force, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, is going to be important, right? But the debate on usability and the quality of who can use the offsets when can they use them what is the quality of the offsets that they should use are robustly underway and that's actually quite good because then we can hopefully coalesce around a set of guide rails standards thresholds whatever phrase we want to use for that and then make meaningful progress right which is going to be critical in terms of enhancing the ambition. And the needed financial flows, which I'm hoping, if governments can provide the policy framework, the support, take their own actions. It was very welcome to see the G7 communicate, talk about mm-hmm. uh, ending uh, financing overseas of fossil fuels. That's great. But will that seep into sort of the broader G20 agenda? Will there be actions? There's already already been enough discussion in fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, right. Will they increase penalties for high emissions activities? Will they provide incentives for transition activities? There's a lot in the both sort of the regulatory and tax system that can be done to catalyze multiples more of private investment, right? So I'm um, hoping that they will do that. There's also the issue of debt relief and debt management, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, has become fairly critical in the post-COVID era and I think there also there's an opportunity for um, the larger economies of the world to help support in the process this whole transition to sort of green and ultimately sort of low carbon net zero world whether it's sort of the debt service and suspension initiative championed by IMF or World Bank, or the debt for climate swaps, that could also be an important vehicle. It's a bit of a topic du jour. Uh, We also recently released a discussion paper on that, but uh, probably a topic for another day. So hopefully we can sort of use this opportunity to sort of say, okay, net zero is our end goal, but what do we actually achieve in the process, right? I mean, do we get to a true sort of uh, a sustainable society? Can we address our safety nets in the process, whether they be in terms of income, whether in terms of healthcare, can we use this opportunity to address uh, air pollution that I mentioned earlier? It's deadly in terms of, and that should be of interest, if not in the global interest, absolutely in the local interest to do that. And all of these things align so well with just trying to address climate. Uh, Holistic inclusion of SDGs is great, but a lot of them are interconnected. And so I think it's a great opportunity. And hopefully all of this will come to actually measuring and reporting on what they are doing in terms of their targets, in terms of financing those targets, and ultimately telling the world how much of that they actually managed to do. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, you've covered a lot in that. I have just one follow-up question I'd like to ask. You touched upon the issue of debt, and it's very understandable during this time that governments have been issuing a lot of debt. But more and more in the discussions that we're having around the world, there's a focus that there's plenty of green debt out there now and what we need is more green equity. And it's been interesting with what we've seen in the private sector, the rise of more and more PE funds who are now looking for clean tech opportunities and clean tech solutions. Do you see this as one of the next big trends?
1: So look, I mean, uh, if uh, okay, this is only a half throwaway remark, but uh, if you look at, if you invested in uh, Tesla even a year or two ago, uh, mm. you made out like a bandit. Um, exactly. But, but we also know that uh, for every Tesla, there are dozens of um, investments that are not anywhere close to being that successful, right? But that's what private equity does well, right? I mean, it takes an approach, hits a few out of the ballpark and uh, everybody ultimately benefits and hopefully the private equity funds make enough money to keep going. Green, a lot of uh, this sort of discussion has been going on and off. I mean, the whole focus on green bonds for a while uh, was some people argued overstated because the, issue was there was not enough equity, which is the true funds at risk. And um, we're going to ultimately need a lot more of that. It'll help in many ways, right? Of course, it'll help in advancement of new technologies. That's the clean tech aspect, Uh, and we need some, or let's put it this way, we need many more if you're gonna ultimately convincingly make headway on the net zero commitments. But at the same time, my concern remains in terms of deploying this in emerging markets, right? So how do we ultimately help open up these markets for green equity, as you said, in the markets beyond the established few? Ultimately, if that's where the action is going to be, if that's where a lot of the debt is going to get deployed, Mm -hmm. we need to be looking ahead to help those markets develop, Uh, the equity markets and most of the emerging markets develop in a way that allows for a lot more of this to happen both locally, but also in terms of uh, foreign inflows. And of course, ahead of that, there has to be an even bigger surge in what uh, the established financial centers are already being able to do. And, but this will have to happen fairly quickly. So yes, the short answer is there is huge opportunity for sure. But as of now, what I'm observing and seeing is that it's still happening relatively smaller amounts. And if this is going to become better than an alternative investment type asset class for the large institutional investors, then we're going to have to see more successes, more robustness and more sort of uh, formation around it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we've covered a lot of territory in this discussion. So I'd like to move from the big picture to the small picture and focus on you. And hopefully this is an easy question to close. Just to touch upon what are some of the ways that you live a greener, sustainable lifestyle?
1: Yeah, okay, that's good. So actually, just Linking back to the whole issue of targets and measuring and reporting, a small group of us did a personal carbon footprint exercise uh, during my last year at IFC to help us figure it out and uh, to see where we were, what we could do, and what uh, commitments we were making and trying to accomplish. So for me, I I already purchased wind-generated electricity, and pay the provider extra to offset the natural gas that is what is used for heating and cooking in my 80-year-old house. So you know, it's, uh, maybe when I change homes, we can look more into that. But for now, that is sort of at least offset. It's carbon neutral, if uh, not zero. I do have a car, but after seven years of owning it, it barely has 20,000 miles. So I pretty much walk or take public transport or Mm -hmm. shared rides to the extent possible. I live in the city, so that's easier. I have been trying somewhat successfully, or you could say somewhat unsuccessfully, it's halfway there, to reduce my red meat consumption. and trying to limit it to no more than a couple of times. Uh, Although I'm an avid reader of all the discussions that tell us that maybe we all agree that that needs to reduce. Doesn't need to go to zero. I don't want to get into that debate, but at least I'm definitely trying to reduce it. My biggest footprint is actually comes from uh, flying for personal reasons. Honestly, because it's not just leisure travel that COVID's curtailed for all of us anyway. But um, you know, just to spend time with aging, ailing parents who, are, who lives in India. So that long haul flying can't do much about that. Mm-hmm. Offset it and try, but. You know, it's a challenge, and you know, I sort of, with that, empathize with everybody struggling to get to zero. But how are we going to get to that? There have to be viable options and alternatives available, as much at the personal level as uh, sort of the broader, sort of corporate financial sector level, right?
0: It is. It's a frequent flyer. I'm sympathetic about that, also, and how we support viable options. I mean, it's not possible, for example, to take a train to China. So how do we find yes, other ways exactly. <laughs> Other ways. Oh, the to technology
1: get there. is not there yet to risk <laughs> no. ourselves on an, electric, on an electric aircraft yet. You know, it doesn't have the range yeah. to start with, but yes. So, um, yeah, so, you know, we're all in it from personal to work to everything else that we are trying to do, but uh, hopefully, collectively, we shall overcome and succeed. That's right.
0: Well, that's a great note and positive note to end on. Vikram, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. These are such important topics and you have such deep background and experience. We're really appreciative of your insights.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah. And thank you. and appreciate you and the Paulson Institute actually giving me this opportunity. It's been wonderful. Thank you again.
0: Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks too. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at
1: paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.